in this special audio documentary, Simon Deacon, Professor of Law at the University of Cambridge and Director of the CBR, introduces all the guest speakers from the recent CBR conference, Post-Brexit Options for the UK, Combining Legal and Economic Analysis. It was held at the Theatre Peterhouse, Cambridge, on the 30th of March, 2017. It was organised jointly by the Cambridge Public Policy Strategic Research Initiative and the Centre for Business Research. We're grateful for the support of the University of Cambridge Impact Acceleration Account. Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. We're taking part in a workshop on post-Brexit options for the UK, combining legal and economic analysis, which took place in the theatre, Peterhouse, Cambridge, on the 30th of March, 2017. Brendan Sims, The Geopolitics of Brexit, or Britain's Bill to Europe. John Bell and Julian Gosch, Brexit and Devolution. David Howarth, The UK Constitution and the Great Repeal Act. Laurent Bartels, The WTO Option. Michael Weibel, The UK's Exit Bill. Graham Gudgeon, the UK mod economic forecast of the effects of Brexit. Simon Deakin, a libertarian Britain prepares to leave an ordo-liberal EU. Kirsty Hughes, the right to remain of EU nationals. Martin Steinfeld, free movement of persons. Catherine Barnard, migration and employment rights. Brendan Sims, Professor of the History of European International Relations and Director on the Forum on Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. And your book is called? It's called Britain's Europe, A Thousand Years of Conflict and Cooperation. You began your talk by referring to Theresa May's speech mm. yesterday. There's been a new speech while this conference mm. has been going on by David Davis and mm. the great Brexit bill. But you quoted that there were six references in her speech to security and three to trade, mm. a stat that others have mentioned on the mm. news last mm. night and this morning too. Does that surprise you or do you think she's got a point that we do pay more into NATO so therefore we have a right to expect something back from Europe? I think that's correct. I think there is a, a sense in which the European order is based on two pillars, one of which is the European Union, the other of which is NATO. And just as in a sense Britain would like to cherry pick within the European Union, that is having access to the single market but not accepting immigration the way the European Union would like, in the same way the rest of Europe cherry picks on defence because of course it allows itself to be defended by the Anglo-Americans and doesn't pay anything like its 2% commitment under NATO. So you don't see her written Article 50 note to leave as being threatening. I think one headline was she was holding a gun to Europe's head. You see it as part of our continuity and history. We do give more to defence, therefore yeah. we shouldn't just sacrifice trade without showing that, that we've got some muscle too and that muscle is in the area of defence. Exactly right. It's, it's, not a, it's not a threat, but it's simply a reminder of, of the geopolitical realities. And that what we should be looking at is not a narrow trade negotiation, but what in Ireland we call the totality of the relationships. That's really what's at stake here. And as a historian, has there ever been a period in history like this before? We've heard Professor David Howarth and others, the lawyers, talk about how it's so complex to unravel our own legislative programme from the EU. Has historically there been anything like it? Well, I think the legal com complexities probably are unique. But if you think of the Reformation, which was a great unravelling on the religious side and the church side, that was a very complex 
operation. And as regards the geopolitical patterns, well, they've remained, as I, I think I've indicated, they've remained rather constant um, over time. So it is about 500 years since we've had anything like it. Yes, that's about the shape of it. <laughs> Professor John Bell, University of Cambridge. You had a look at Brexit and devolution. Are there going to be major obstacles for the UK to Brexit the EU in terms of what we call the devolved assemblies? Yes. The first problem is that the UK in its negotiations has the power to, to make all the treaties. But when the powers return to the UK from the EU, they fall into sometimes into categories where the competence to make decisions in the future lie with the different devolved assemblies. We do not have a uniform system of devolution, so the powers are going to be different between Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. What first needs to be worked out is who is going to be making the decisions post-Brexit on particular areas, such as agriculture, such as the environment, such as research. And then there are also issues about the transition, because the UK government has said that it will take control over certain things, at least temporarily, because that's the most effective way of doing it. To take one example, the agricultural community are entitled to funding from the common agricultural policy until at least the end of 2020. If the UK leaves in 2019, what the UK government has said is that the UK government will pay out monies to farmers in all parts of the UK between 2019 and 2020 how agriculture is governed post-2021, where there will not be uniformity across the UK. So there will need to be rules governing the 2019 to 2020 period, but then thereafter, there is the question about how agriculture is governed post-2021, where there will not be uniformity across the UK. Julian Ghosh. I'm a bifellow at Peterhouse in Law and I'm also a practising barrister at the Tax Bar in London. You were looking at what the taxation system would look like post-Brexit. Have you got concerns? And if so, what are they? Yes, I've, I've got concerns. To sum it up, it's that nobody's really thought about tax. There are all sorts of areas where really there's been quite a lot of thought and some organised work that's been done, agriculture, fishing, seasonal workers. Tax, almost none at all. Uh, tax is important for reasons that we, I think, will talk about. I think there needs to be some thinking. And the taxation systems in the United Kingdom, we are four countries, that's been emphasised by Nicola Sturgeon for the SNP, who wants another referendum on whether they stay within the UK or not. But how does the taxation system play out across the four countries? For the main taxes that everyone will know about, income tax, corporation tax, capital gains tax, there aren't four countries, there are United Kingdom taxes. Even for the Scottish rate of income tax, which again, I think some may know about, where the Scottish government can raise the rate of income tax, that's not what's called a devolved tax, that's a United Kingdom tax, but the, the Scottish government has got power to just upwards rates. There are some devolved taxes, the equivalent of stamp duty, for example, 
it's called land, buildings and transaction tax in, in Scotland. That is a devolved tax. That's entirely within the jurisdiction of the Scots government. For the main taxes, no, there's, there aren't four jurisdictions, there's one. Do you think it's going to have a knock-on impact on business? Because business won't know the rules of engagement. Yes, it's, it's, it's unsatisfactory that business doesn't have certainty because profound legal questions and matters of legal reasoning and philosophy about what is or, or isn't a judgment which merely declares existing law and defines and makes it visible as opposed to making new law. It's great for academics like me. In my role as an academic, it's not at all good for a client who's doing real business in the real world who actually wants to know what the rules are. It also stores up trouble this prospect for governments because it lays open opportunistic challenges by business who want to take advantage of a post-two-year date decision, which might be advantageous, to raise an action in the UK courts to say, well, you said we were subject to EU law as it was previous to this date. This post-two-year date decision tells us what that pre-two-year law actually is. So see you in court. This is hopeless for the government as well as for business. Sounds like we could become a tin pot economy. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But what I do say is that tax is necessarily a cost to business and tax is also used as an incentive to attack business. So when actually what is front and centre of Brexit considerations and negotiations is trade and free trade, tax ought to be more visible than it is. David Howes, Professor of Law and Public Policy, University of Cambridge. We had a white paper, the Great Repeal Bill, published yesterday. What do you make of it? Well, it didn't resolve all the problems that we were talking about yesterday in the hour before it was published. It's resolved some of them. In fact, rather oddly, it seems to have envisaged scenarios that we thought were quite extreme uh, coming to the fore, but it didn't resolve some of the more uh, obvious problems. Uh, So, for example, there's a, a big problem about what to do about pre-Brexit law, where there's a British statute made before Brexit and an EU law, again made before Brexit, where the British statute is incompatible with the EU law. Now, before Brexit, in the period we've been in since 1973, it turns out the British courts sort of struck down or disapplied that British statute. And they did that famously with laws to do with fishing in, in the Factotame case. Now, the, one of the questions that we were asking yesterday was, well, what happens after Brexit if that situation arises again? Uh, would it be possible for a British court to say, uh, the other side of Brexit, this British statute that came about before we left was incompatible with EU law at that time and therefore shouldn't be applied? There are definite possibilities where that might come about. For example, if in the next two years before we actually leave, the UK Parliament were to pass laws about immigration, in particular about uh, social security and benefits, which would be incompatible with EU law as it now stands. The theoretical possibility was that a British court might strike down UK statute as incompatible with EU law as it stood at the time. Putting that forward is a rather extreme possibility, but it turns out that in the white paper on the so-called Great Repeal Bill that came out just an hour after we're talking about this, the government is saying that that, that's precisely what might happen. 
So this is a rather extraordinary turn of events. There are other problems, though, which it turns out that the white paper doesn't resolve, which are just as difficult, but in a way less radical. Catherine Barnard gave a talk in the afternoon. She had a copy and had been talking to the media about the Great Repeal Bill, which some people say is wrongly titled because it's not repealing anything. It's incorporating all the EU laws into UK law. Well, that's not quite fair. It will repeal on the day of Brexit, so not yet, only when Brexit happens. It will repeal the European Communities Act 1972. But what it then does is it replaces the legal authority granted by that Act to make various EU provisions UK law, it will replace what the European Communities Act said with another provision that will have the same effect, Well, although not for everything. It isn't true to say it doesn't repeal anything. It does. It, it kind of knocks down the wall and then rebuilds it with slightly different bricks later. Lauren Bartels, and I'm a reader in international law at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at Trinity Hall. Can you tell us a little bit about how the WTO rules will apply to the UK post-Brexit? Will we need to renegotiate them? Well, I think actually on this point there's been a little bit of confusion, but there is starting to be some clarity. The important point is that the UK is already an independent WTO member according to WTO law, which means that it has all normal WTO rights and all normal WTO obligations. The reason that there's been some confusion is that the UK is an EU member state and as such the EU has taken responsibility for the UK's position in the WTO. So when the UK leaves the EU, the UK will have to assume its position, its responsibility for the first time since it joined the EEC in 19, well, from WTO terms, this began in 1974, GATT in those days. But if one scrapes away the EU level, the UK level is still there and it has always been there. So apart from the UK exercising its rights and taking responsibility for performing its obligations, that bit is new, nothing changes. The rights and the obligations are there today and they will continue to be there after Brexit. It's just that we will see them for the first time. And that presumably the UK will be in charge of them rather than sidelining responsibility to the EU. What are the obligations under WTO rules for the UK? Well, you can essentially divide them into, let's say, three major categories. So one category is institutional, and this is the right to vote, the right to bring cases in dispute settlement proceedings, and, and so on. And both of these have been exercised by the EU. So this will be a novelty. The UK will be turning up in court on both sides, I would expect, like any other large member state. And the voting will now be done by the UK. So that's one basket where there will be some changes in practice. The second area is that there are cross-cutting rules. And the cross Cutting rules are rules essentially on non-discrimination, and they say that in a variety of different ways, a WTO member is not allowed to discriminate against the products and services and intellectual property of other WTO members. And all of that just gets essentially copied and pasted, according to what I was saying before. It doesn't even need to be, but formally speaking, one needs to have these documents with UK at the top of them. But then there's the third category of obligations, not rights in this case. And that is what are called schedules of concessions in goods, and they're called commitments in services. And these are individual to each WTO member, and they're essentially promises not to protect domestic industry by more than a certain amount. So with goods, you say, we will not impose a customs duty of more than 10% on cars. 
or in services you say we will allow in foreign banks up to a certain number and when they're there we won't discriminate against them. At the moment the schedules have EU on the top of them and they are shared between the EU and between all of the EU member states. So it's a, a shared set of schedules of concessions and commitments. When the UK leaves it will need to establish these schedules for itself and you ask what negotiations will there need to be? Well, there won't need to be negotiations for any types of promises that are obviously specific to the UK. So a 10% tariff on cars, at the moment the UK doesn't apply more than 10% tariff on cars coming into the UK and that will continue. There's no need to change anything there. There are only two areas where there will need to probably, probably be some negotiations, although they are of a different sort from normal negotiations, which is that some of these obligations are described as shared, or not even described as shared, they are described as quantities, and the quantities are for the EU. So it's like a house. When you get divorced, you share the house, and you need to work out who gets what slice of the house. And it's exactly the same in the WTO. And these are to do with what I call, there are two types. One is tariff rate quota, which is a quota where you say a certain number of products, mainly uh, food, coming into the country, will get a lower tariff rate than out-of-quota imports. And that, for the moment, that quantity, like 100,000 tonnes of New Zealand lamb, for instance, is for the EU. So you need to work out what share of that will come to the UK and what share of that will go to the EU27. And the other is the right to subsidise domestic agriculture. And that is also done on an EU basis at the moment. So there's a, there's a fixed amount of dollars per year that the EU can spend on domestic agriculture. And there needs to be a decision on how much of that is now the UK's and how much of that is the EU27. But those two items, in economic terms, are very small, probably in the, in the very low percents of the total amount of trade that is involved in the WTO, and it doesn't affect all countries. The tariff rate quotas affect 19 countries. And the negotiations, by and large, will be, I would imagine, about the fringes of disagreement the basic idea of roughly, I mean, it's like, again, with a divorce, you start off from the position of 50-50 and maybe you haggle, you know, 5-10% in one direction or the other. So none of that affects the UK's position in the WTO. You can put it in the basket of a fairly run-of-the-mill trade dispute, really. And those are the sorts of things that take a bit of time, but they're not of any existential importance, really. They're just, you know, that's why you're in the system, really, is to sort this sort of stuff out. Michael Weibel, University of Cambridge. We're here to discuss your paper, The UK's Liability for Financial Obligations Arising Out of Its EU Membership. Theresa May has just triggered Article 50. What is the process for determining the UK's financial liability now? That's the big question. We're going to leave the EU. She's just said so. She's triggered Article 50. But how much is it going to cost us? Well, like other aspects of the relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union, past and future, this is primarily a matter for negotiations between the EU27 and the United Kingdom. That said, the European Union and various individual member states have reiterated on various occasions over the past few months that they will want a settlement of the UK's financial obligations arising out of its 
more than 45-year membership of the European Union prior to them being prepared to talk about the future trade relationship between the UK and the European Union. And there was a House of Lords report in March this year on Brexit and the EU budget. What did that say? There have been some quite wild assessments of how much it's going to cost us to leave and some retorts so that it shouldn't cost us anything. Yes. Yeah. So the report is a very useful document because it canvasses the various arguments about this complex questions of the UK's financial obligations. In legal terms, it reaches two key conclusions. The first is that the UK is not liable as a legal matter for financial obligation arising out of its membership in the European Union and that the Court of Justice is unlikely to have jurisdiction over this question. Basically, the assessment by the House of Lords is that we can just leave and it's not necessarily going to cost us anything. That's the legal assessment. The House of Lords is very careful to say that in political and economic terms, that is unlikely to be a very fruitful path for the United Kingdom. But their assessment as a backdrop to these negotiations is that there is no legal liability. Well, the key question for you then, as the author of this paper about our financial obligations arising out of the EU membership, has the House of Lords got it right? Well, in purely legal terms, I think the House of Lords has got it wrong. I would say that the United Kingdom is in principle liable for a share of the EU's budget commitments that have already been made while the United Kingdom was still a member of the European Union. So those budget commitments could last a long time into the future, like environmental improvements? There's a seven-year budget process, and commitments have already been made up to 2020, and it's primarily those commitments that will be the subject of negotiation. Graham Gudgeon, I'm Research Associate at the Centre for Business Research in the Judge Business School, University of Cambridge. Graham, thanks for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. We're looking at the post-Brexit options for the UK. We're going to talk about your blog on a critique of Treasury estimates of the impact of Brexit. Why do we need this paper? The key reason is that there are very large numbers of people in this country who think that Brexit will be very damaging for the UK economy. There are Remainers. But this is a very important issue in Scotland and in Northern Ireland, for instance, where perhaps the majority of people feel that this, this Brexit is going to be damaging. Now, the question is, where do they get that information from? How do they know it's going to be damaging? And for some people, it's a gut feeling. But for an awful lot of people, they've been heavily influenced by the fact that the Treasury, the OECD, the IMF, and many others did big studies on this during the referendum campaign and uniformly said it was going to be damaging. They nearly all use the same techniques. So what we've done is go back over the techniques to see how reliable they are and see whether whether this is reliable. The other thing to say about this, of course, is that the negotiations, which are just about to begin between the UK and the EU on the UK leaving, will be highly coloured by what the negotiators believe will happen. If the UK negotiators, for instance, believe that World Trade Organization rules will be very damaging, then they presumably try very hard to avoid that. But if, on the other hand, they thought it wasn't very damaging, then they might not try as hard. They'd have more options. So these studies, which were done during the referendum, are still very relevant and will remain relevant, I think, for a number of years yet. The studies have been discredited because there hasn't been an economic collapse. And whether you're David Cameron, the former Prime Minister, or the former Chancellor George Osborne, they have been taken to task for the Treasury forecasts. But how did you go about constructing a new economic model post-Brexit? 
Yeah, the first thing to say about the forecasts are that there were two different forecasts. And in the Treasury case, two completely separate reports done a month apart. One was on the short-term impact, and it's that that's been discredited. They said there would be an immediate recession, lots of problems. And now, nine months later, we, we know that hasn't happened. So economists have once again got egg on their face over forecasts. But there were separate forecasts for what's called the long-term impact, for what actually happens to trade and therefore the economy after we actually leave the EU in 2019. And it's that which hasn't been discredited and which is still widely believed. And almost any day of the week in the press or television, radio, you can hear people say that this will be disastrous for the UK economy. And virtually nobody asks them how they know it'll be disastrous. Well, what evidence is this based on? Because there's no way in which they can understand these studies. They're far too technical. So it's, it, you know, it's down to people like ourselves to look at the technical aspects and see whether they are reliable. And to do that, we've had to build a whole trade model, a gravity model, as it's called in the jargon. It's called gravity model because the amount of trade between two countries depends on the sizes of their economy and inversely on the distance apart that the two countries are. And we've had to build that. And this is a huge job because there are about 120 countries in the world. And if you're looking at the trade of all 120 with, in each case with the other 119, you're getting on for a million observations. And even spreadsheets and so on can't handle this amount of data. It needs like specialist software to, to handle it. We've done that. Researchers in the Centre for Business Research, but with colleagues in Ulster University have been very good on, on the data side. But it's been a big job. But as they say, someone has to do it. You've got a name for your model and you've looked separately at trade. We do have a macroeconomic model that we just call UK Mod, just for short. But this is something quite separate and, and additional. And the reason we got into this work was that in doing our macroeconomic forecasts that we do each year, we had to say something about the impact of Brexit. Now, what most people are doing is just lifting the Treasury estimates and putting them into their model, but they didn't seem plausible to us. For instance, the Treasury says there will be something like a 45% fall in trade in goods with the EU if we leave and revert to World Trade Organization rules. Well, the, the average tariff is about 4%, and we've already had a 12% depreciation of, of sterling. And you think, why on earth would that lead to losing almost half our goods trade? It didn't seem to us to be plausible. We got into the rather huge task of building this new gravity model. Perhaps if we didn't know how much work it was, we might not have done it, but we have anyway. Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Where do you think we'll be in five years' time down the Brexit negotiation route? And what will be the impact on social policy, employment rights, the best and the worst scenario? So all these complex issues around the so-called exit bill, they've got to be sorted out. But let's assume that negotiations begin. They almost certainly can't be concluded within two years of March 2017, so there'll have to be a transitional arrangement. And I read that to mean that we would, would remain, in effect, within the single market and subject to all its rules and subject to ECJ, European Court of Justice, CJEU jurisdiction. So if that happens, actually very little would, would change. And in the longer run, if this goes according to plan, assuming we're carrying on leaving, I guess we have to assume that, there'd be as deep and as comprehensive a free trade agreement as possible, deeper than the Canadian agreement, deeper than the Ukraine association agreement, maybe not much would change. But of course, if that's the case, what will happen to the labour market? Many of the social policy rules would be the same. Perhaps also on migration, we shouldn't really expect to see significant falls because 
although we would presumably, if we leave, no longer have free movement of persons, it's highly likely that there would be some sort of deal under which migration from EU member states for seasonal working in agriculture or migration by medical professionals would continue to take place as part of either a transitional deal, let's see how that works out, or possibly a longer-term free trade agreement, because if you look at other free trade agreements around the world, you do often see provision for that limited type of labour migration. And so, in a way, you're optimistic. Well, I'm optimistic that a deal can be done. The downside would be, what if no deal is done? Now, then I think there are two scenarios, aren't there? One is uh, hard Brexit, and then I I think it's pretty clear the government is highly likely to switch tack and say, well, Philip Hammond has already said, if you force us down this route, then we could become a low-tax, low-regulation economy, not a mainstream European economy. That's more or less what he said a few weeks ago. That would happen. And I think the downside to that would be we would not only be failing to address the concerns about inequality and deindustrialization, which helped to drive the Brexit vote. This would just make all that worse. But we wouldn't be helping our economy either because there's no real evidence that a modern economy can survive on low pay. But of course there is another option. If the deal falters and we're faced with a situation of a hard Brexit, politically we are bound to see discussion come back onto the agenda, certainly staying within the European economic area, that's bound to happen. And it's already been suggested that there'd have to be a separate vote on leaving the European economic area. So I think we, it is yet to become clear, actually, what would happen if there was a choice between no Brexit and a hard Brexit. And this uncertainty possibly would be very damaging. Leaving aside the arguments arising from the CBR economic forecast that the effects of Brexit might not be as serious as, as a Treasury model suggested, we nevertheless might be facing a period of uncertainty, and that could go on for several years, and that wouldn't be good. And I think our empirical evidence supports the position that one can design labour laws which achieve a measure of social justice, of greater fairness, are far from harming the economy. They can contribute to a dynamic economy. Now, for the UK to step back from that model would not be offering any kind of economic salvation and would certainly not be addressing the needs of the so-called left behind, the segment of the working class in the UK which voted for Brexit and probably tipped the balance on June the 23rd. So it doesn't seem to me to be a plausible option either from the point of view of fairness or from the point of view of efficiency, nor from the point of view of the political process around Brexit. It's not an option for us to go back to a deregulated, light-touch labour market. So we really ought to map out and use Brexit to find out and scope what kind of economy we are and to be bold in saying what kind of economy we want. If we had stayed in the EU, we could have done this anyway, and it might have been compatible with the broad thrust of EU social policy. But of course, you're quite right, Brexit has focused our minds on things which to some degree had become issues that were just never discussed in in policy circles. There was a consensus that our labour market policy was the right one in government circles, even though it was leading to more inequality, even though it was leading to social fragmentation. Now, Brexit was a shock, that's for sure, for the uh, governing elites in, in this country. So in that sense, you're quite right, it does give us the opportunity to rethink our labour market policy. We absolutely must do that going forward. And we need strong regulation and strong laws. We need strong laws and we also need access to justice for workers. We need stronger collective bargaining and we need measures to achieve greater wage equality in this country. Yeah.
and proper access to employment tribunals. We, we absolutely have to reverse the recent rules imposing fees on applicants asserting labour rights before em employment tribunals. That's an absolutely essential step. And if the current government is consistent in its position on addressing the underlying causes of the Brexit vote, one of the things it must consider doing is reversing those fees reforms. So Brexit, on the one hand, may have dampened people's spirits, particularly the Remainers. On another, it is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity not just to do these things, but to open up the debate about what we want to do. I suspect that going forward, if we just think about this in terms of domestic policy, Brexit's going to help us have a, a, a better debate about labour market policy. Ultimately, these solutions require international cooperation. So the downside to Brexit is it may make it much more difficult to forge international consensus on these questions, but let's see what happens. To what extent we end up outside the single market, really it's going to be a matter of degree. The current government's position for a deep and comprehensive trade agreement actually takes us back in to much of the single market, and we will be bound going forward by single market rules. And We may even have to accept the jurisdiction of the ECJ over a large number of issues. So let's see how that pans out. Very different from the rhetoric. It's absolutely different from the hard Brexit rhetoric that we've become accustomed to over the past few months. That's right. I'm Dr Kirsty Hughes and I'm a lecturer in law at the University of Cambridge. We're here to discuss the right to remain of EU nationals. Can you give us some background as to why EU nationals think they're being used as a bargaining chip in the Brexit negotiations? Certainly. Well, following the EU referendum, the position of EU nationals in the UK has been left unclear and the government has not clarified that they will be allowed to remain in the UK following the Brexit referendum. So are they being used as a bargaining chip in the Brexit negotiations? The reason that EU nationals feel that they're being used as a bargaining chip in the Brexit negotiations is that the government has declined to make a unilateral declaration guaranteeing their residency in the UK post-Brexit. And a number of ministers, including the Prime Minister and Liam Fox, have made statements suggesting that this will be a matter for negotiations of EU withdrawal and that it will be contingent upon guaranteeing residency of UK nationals in other EU member states. And so this has given the sense that EU nationals in the UK are being used as a bargaining chip for other UK interests abroad. And the right to EU nationals to remain here was one of the two amendments the Lords made to the very slim Brexit bill. The Commons didn't approve either of those amendments. Do you think the government could have made a concession here? After all, people's lives and livelihoods are at stake. Yes, I think that's correct. They could have made a concession. They could have guaranteed the residency of EU nationals at that point. They didn't want to because they want to use it as part of negotiations and because they wanted to keep the legislation purely to the Article 50 position. But ultimately, if they want to guarantee that EU nationals can remain in the UK, then there isn't really a reason for not doing so. Dr Martin Steinfeld, I'm a lecturer in EU law at the Faculty of Law. You've just delivered your lecture on free movement of people. What do we know about the free movement of people in the European Union post-Brexit? We're in a new age now. Well, from a, from a technical point of view, free movement of persons in the European Union post-Brexit from the perspective of two categories. 
EU nationals that reside, whether long-term or short-term, in the United Kingdom. And, of course, UK nationals in the remainder of the European Union will cease to be exercising any right to free movement. Um, they will no longer be EU citizens in the UK nationals' case exercising that right. So... From that perspective, the rights would then have to be transferred over to some kind of domestic law for EU nationals that remain within the United Kingdom. And that is the big question that is up for discussion. And from I've, I haven't had much chance to look at the white paper that's, that's come today, but from what I'm guessing, the specific details of that, and the, as an EU lawyer, the devil is always in the detail, will not be contained in this white paper and will possibly take for the form of secondary legislation. And then... We've already spoken to Dr Kirsty Hughes. She firmly believes that EU nationals do have rights to stay here. There's international courts as well that people can appeal to. You're talking about falling back onto domestic uh, legislation too. But how do you see your way through these levels of legislature, both within the UK, within Europe, and internationally, wider too? It's going to be very complex. This is a multi-level complexity that the UK has never really faced. From the perspective, for instance, of constituency number one being the EU nationals, Dr Hughes quite rightly pointed out that there are all, there's all sorts of protection for an entitlement for EU nationals to reside in the United Kingdom. But that's only the first step. There have been extensive rights, many of which weren't really spoken about much in the referendum campaign, which EU citizens on have exercising their right to free movement have had for many, many years. And that is a matter for huge discussion, at least on initially on a domestic level in terms of what pieces of legislation may or may not flow to replicate the rights that they already had. However, there is then also a supra or EU level set of negotiations that will have to take place. This is particularly important for the UK nationals, say the 300,000 UK nationals in southern Spain. There will then need to be a negotiation about this matter that will be taking place from the perspective of Commission and the Council, but then the various different member states might take different views in relation to that. It remains to be the case as to what, as you put it, international law might be applicable, but as a good example, is it conceivable that depending on how Brexit takes its shape, that at some stage in the future, let's just say it's a hard Brexit where there's no deal, there could be a claim that there has been a breach of the European Convention. Could we be finding, for instance, a whole series of cases ending up at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg? This is all up for discussion. We don't know yet. But what, what we do know is that there is an awful lot of negotiation that will take place beyond the simple right to reside and remain for both constituencies, both people, the EU nationals within the United Kingdom and UK nationals in the other member states. Catherine Barnard and I'm Professor of EU Law here at the University of Cambridge and I'm also UK and Changing Europe Senior Fellow. Catherine, thank you for joining us at the CBR conference on the post-Brexit Euro referendum. Theresa May yesterday triggered Article 50. What do you make of it all? I see you've been on the phone to the media all day long. So yesterday Article 50 was triggered, which is the start of the process which takes us out of the EU at European Union level. And today what was published was the white paper on the Great Repeal Bill. It's not actually going to be called that because that goes against parliamentary norms, so it's going to just be called the Repeal Bill. And this is the bill which will, first of all, reverse the European Communities Act 1972, which was the act that took us into the European Union. Secondly... 
It's about giving effect to all of EU law into UK law in respect to those areas where that's not already occurred. And thirdly, it will give power to the executive to amend, repeal, replace those bits of law which don't fit the current British system. Now, it's only a white paper at the moment. It's not the bill itself. The bill will be published in a couple of weeks' time. But the government is calling for people to consult about the content of what's in the white paper. And will there be lots of challenges to it? We've heard Professor David Howarth talk about the complexities with the European to to UK legislation, European legislation, international rights and treaties too. How is the UK government going to weave its way through it? The rhetoric sounds simple, but the realities and the practicalities are complex. Well, that's right. I think the actual logistics of disentangling ourselves from the EU are incredibly large and it will take a considerable period of time, certainly more than the two years that um, the government thinks it can be done in. Optimist? It will be done, but it will take much longer. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Centre for Business Research and the Cambridge Public Policy Strategic Research Initiative. We're grateful for the support of the University of Cambridge Impact Acceleration Account. Thank you for listening.